With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, I always wondered why it's called a taxi squad and whose idea was to have a playbook the size of the yellow pages. We don't have those anymore, but these innovations and many, many more came from the mind of Paul Brown. And one of them was by accident. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. It's Tuesday. It's Halloween night. I got my papers. I'm prepared. NFL historians and lovers of sports history welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals. And as I always say, if you already know this stuff, that's great, especially today's show. Cleveland Browns fans should really know this stuff. And, uh, you know, congratulations to you. But there's always someone else who doesn't. That's why this show exists. For those who don't know as much about NFL history, so my job is to enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports, the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, and Belly Up Media. BellyUpSports.com. Go to that website, click on it, check out the stories, check out our writers, check out all our other shows, especially this one, our merch, all of it. You can catch us on our home base of Megaphone, that's M-E-G-A-P-H-O-N-E, Megaphone, and the favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So what, it's time for the rundown. What was the the storyline pretty much of this past weekend, well, more close games, but then other than that, five quarterbacks KO'd. You know, they're knocked out again, one for the season. And I love what uh, Scott Van Pelt had to say on Monday Night Football when he was talking about one of those quarterbacks. You can't just go to the quarterback store and buy another one. It's just not that simple. But six backups started on Sunday, and 13 actually played. Well, Let's hear all about it. Week 8, it's the rundown. Thursday night football, Buccaneers, Bills. Going into this game, what was I looking for? I was looking to see what the Bills offense would do. All right, They played a more up-tempo style Thursday night, and they looked pretty good. Doing, didn't score a whole lot of points, but they scored the points they needed to. Josh Allen's ability that day, that night, to spread the football around was big. Stephon Diggs, 
Gabe Davis, they both caught nine apiece. Davis scored a touchdown. Khalil Shakir, he had 92 yards on six catches. And rookie Dalton Kincaid, the rookie tight end, caught five and scored his first NFL touchdown. And I mean, they didn't have a 100-yard rusher, but they ran for a 115 as a team. Cook averaged almost, James Cook, averaged almost five a carry. Josh Allen had 41 yards himself and scored a touchdown. That's what I liked. That's why they won the game. Now, as far as the Buccaneers, again, Baker Mayfield, a second week in a row, he's throwing the football 42 times and was under constant pressure. They still can't run the football. And the crazy thing is, it was still a Hail Mary and an extra point away from winning the game. But instead, they fall below 500. Bills 24, Buccaneers 18. Sunday, noon slate, Falcons, Titans. All right, so we had two teams that wore throwback jerseys, all right? The Seahawks did it, and of course the Titans, we knew that at the beginning of the season. I had friends that were buying and, and getting their powder blues, their old Houston Oilers unis out, and obviously some people down in Houston didn't like it. One in particular, J.J. Watt. Message to J.J., all right? You've got to know your history, bro, all right? If the city of Houston had bought Bud Adams, or bought, built Bud Adams, a new stadium, we wouldn't be talking about this. You would have been drafted by the Houston Oilers. You would have at some point played in those powder blues and we wouldn't be talking about this. But since they did not provide Bud Adams a new stadium, he moved his team here, taking his colors as well as the team records. All of that belongs here in Nashville now. Doesn't belong to Houston. The Houston Texans are a brand new franchise. You don't get to keep that just because it started off down there. The owner left with all of it. We got other examples. The Chicago Cardinals, St. Louis, and Arizona Cardinals. The Baltimore Colts, the Indianapolis Colts. The San Diego Chargers, LA Chargers, whatever they want to be called if they don't move again. The Oakland Raiders, same thing. LA to Oakland to Vegas. And they're one of the few teams that did change their color scheme. They used to look like Army you know, back in the day until Al Davis got there. And then you got the Cleveland Rams who wore the blue and the white. Then they put in a sprinkle of gold in 1946 when they moved to LA. St. Louis back to LA. The Dallas Texans, Kansas City Chiefs, doesn't matter. Same color scheme. They move cities. And that's just one of many examples, unless you're talking about the Browns and the Baltimore Ravens. And that was a court thing, which it was settled on. Look, all right, you can move Art Modell. You can take the Browns there, but you got to leave the Browns name and the records and all of that. That did not happen in Houston. So, all right, if you want to play in those powder blues, come out of retirement, and then maybe at some point you can suit up for the Titans and, you know, there you go. That's the only way that anybody, it's <laughs> the only way he would have played in them anyway. Point blank, period. Furthermore, when the team first got here, they were the Tennessee Oilers. We still were wearing those jerseys, okay? I, it's there. I mean, it's out there. And they were playing at Vanderbilt. They're ours. Sorry. Get your own. Now to the game. Will Levis now has Ryan Tannehill's job, period. He's the third player in history, became the third player in history to have four touchdown passes in his first game. D-Hop caught three of them. The Titans defense had six sacks. Five of them were on Desmond Ritter, who had to leave due to a concussion. And I think the guy that came in for him, uh, Tyler, uh, Taylor Heineke, is probably going to be the starter going forward anyway. Ritter lost another fumble. And uh, Heineke tried to engineer a Falcons comeback, came up short. Oh, by the way, Derrick Henry ran for over 100 yards and touched the ball 22 times 
on the ground. When he does that, they win, and they won Sunday. Titans 28, Falcons 23. Jags, Steelers, Deontay Johnson, you can't put everything on the refs. I understand your frustration, and you probably are right about some of that, but you, this offense still has to be better. I'll make this quick. They were two and a half point dogs at home, and they lost by 10 to Jacksonville. They had a chance to tie this game. Pickett, <laughs> he, he missed the remainder of the game. Another injury, thought it was his shoulder, was his ribs instead. They can't run the football. Uh, it's, it's, it's just bad. Trubisky comes in, throws two interceptions. Jacksonville's D, they just came up big. They had three sacks, nine quarterback hits on top of those two interceptions. And Pittsburgh's defense wasn't exactly terrible. But when Minko goes down, Minka Fitzpatrick goes out with the hamstring in the first quarter, it was all downhill from there. Look at what happened on that touchdown pass from Trevor Lawrence to his former college teammate, Travis Etienne. What are they doing back there? I don't know. But, you know, oh, and by the way, other than the Jags winning five in a row, we'll see what happens after that. But message to you Jaguars players who got those terrible tiles, that's going to come back on you. Jaguars 20, Steelers 10. Rams, Cowboys, always right in the world for the Cowboys fans. And on the day that DeMarcus Rare, the newly uh, minted, fresh, you know, off the, the showroom floor, Hall of Famer is getting put into the ring of honor, the Cowboys ring of honor. Dak Prescott has his first 300-yard game. He throws four touchdowns. C.D. Lamb caught 12 passes and 158 yards. The defense is scoring touchdowns. The special teams are scoring, and the Rams look bad. And this Rams defense is not good. The team, offensively, if Stafford is playing well, they go and they do well. But other than that, it's not a whole lot to talk about. This isn't the same Rams team that won the Super Bowl clearly, what, three years ago. They are going backwards, it feels like. Um, that's all I can say about the Rams. You know, Puka Nakul, he's maintaining that receptions record. That's about it. 61 catches in eight games. But, uh, you know, that's about it. Um, Cowboys 43, Rams 20. Vikings, Packers, uh, not great. Minnesota lost the one thing that was keeping their offense going and for the rest of the season. Kirk Cousins, towards Achilles. I'm watching the game. I'm thinking it was his ankle. He sprang his ankle, but then he was on a cart. Thank God Minnesota was up 24-3 at the time. They got at least one more win before he goes out for the season. We'll see what the future backup does going forward. The Packers offense stinks. Head coach Matt LaFleur knows it. There's nowhere around that. Uh, they had 11 penalties, and at one point, the Packers offense only had 26 total yards in the second quarter. Woof. So, all right. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Final. Vikings 24, Packers 10. Saints, Colts. I know Chris Olave leads the Saints in receiving in almost every category except for touchdowns. Mike Thomas is number two. But Rashid, he seems to be Derek Carr's favorite. And he just goes to this guy and he makes the big plays. I mean, you got Olave and Thomas who catch these short passes right now, even though we know Olave is a burner. But Chris, it's crazy. Um, Shahid is averaging 20 yards per catch. He only caught three, had a buck 53, uh, and he had a 158 yard in the second quarter that put the Saints up for good. Jonathan Taylor, 95 yards on the ground, only 12 carries. Zach Moss pacing at 66 more, and he scored a touchdown. You know, but Gardner Minshew and the rest of the Indy, they just could not keep up with the Saints. And Carr, once again, 300 yards through the air. And uh, three rushing touchdowns between Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara. 
got the job done on the road. They stopped a two-game skid. Saints 38, Colts 27. First thing I wrote down, Eagles commanders. Six yards rushing by the Philadelphia Eagles in the first half. Six. But they got it done through uh, through the air instead. Jalen Hurts threw for, what, 319? Uh, four touchdowns, no interceptions this time. He came in with eight in seven games. A.J. Brown does help. Really, they got the argument on the sideline in week two. Just throw the ball up. You know, that's what I heard. Just throw the ball up. Became the first receiver in NFL history with six straight games with 125 yards receiving. And he's on my fantasy team. I love it. Washington, they weren't far behind. Sam Howell nearly cracked 400 yards. Uh, had four touchdown passes himself. And look, the Eagles defense, they're starting to have uh, some question marks, specifically in their defensive backfield. But they still improved to 7-1. Eagles 38, Commanders 31, Patriots, Dolphins. Speaking of receiving records, Tariq Hill goes for 1,000 after eight weeks. 1,014 to be exact, became the first receiver in the Super Bowl era. I ain't talking about you know, before that, but in the Super Bowl era to have 1,000 yards. Three guys did it before him. They, they did it you know, before Charlie Hennigan, crazy, Elroy, Crazy Legs, Hurch for the Rams, Don Hudson for the Packers. They did it in the 60s, 50s, and 40s. That's pretty good. Jalen Ramsey comes back, gets his first pick in his first game. Um, Should have had a pick six. And uh, his head coach, Mike McDonough, let him know about it over the podium. Tua Tagovailoa's yet to lose to the Patriots. You know, yep, Mac Jones and those Patriots, they often struggled again, and it gets worse. Kendrick Bourne tore his ACL, his best receiver. Not good. Dolphins 31, Patriots 17. Jets, Giants, P.U. Glad I didn't really watch a whole lot of this one. But Tyrod Taylor and Ribs, I'm not trying to be funny, but it could be a good business decision. Um, the, the dude, you know, between the needle, between the ribs, they pretty much got Justin Herbert's uh, career rolling earlier than, than expected. Um, you know, I think this guy probably needs to partner up with a barbecue joint or something at some point. He was in a hospital. It was that bad. Uh, I'm praying that he's, he, he must be getting better. Um, hopefully. But it was an ugly game. Any way you slice it, 24 punts between the Jets and the Giants. And uh, Tyrod Taylor, he goes out with the injury. He only had eight yards passing. Tommy DeVito comes in. He has minus one yard passing. And by the game was over with, I mean, the Jets defense had four sacks. Uh, and uh, they limited the Giants to minus nine yards passing. That's, I mean, that's crazy. It really is. The Giants try running the ball. Saquon had 36 carries and they should have won the game uh, won the game let's just be real the Giants defense was just as good as the Jets defense but it was just who was going to win on the special teams end and it clearly was the Jets how that happened the Giants they led 10 to 7 late and um <laughs> Graham Gano if he nails a 35 yarder that's it instead he missed it Zach Wilson drives his team down they kick a field goal, and uh, the key play was uh, well, about 26 seconds, I think, left to go. Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau had already lined up offsides on the snap, and Wilson hits Alan Lazard, and that stopped the clock. They was already in field goal range. Greg Zerline not only nails the, the, the field goal to tie it, then he nails the one in overtime to win it. Ouch, town. Population, Giants fans. Giants, excuse me, Jets 13, 
Giants 10. Yeah, Giants should have had 13 points. Texans, Panthers, well, well, well. CJ Stroud and Bryce Young, they meet for the first time uh, in their NFL careers. They're being what the, uh, going all the way back to an eighth grade when they first played against each other. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good story. Uh, on Sunday, they go in. Of course, Bryce Young, the first pick of the draft. And then C.J. Stroud, number two. And they go head-to-head for the first time. Stroud, he's been pretty decent for the Texans. Uh, but, uh, you know, Bryce Young, he struggled for the 0-6 Panthers. And the only guy he really has outside of Chuba Hubbard really has been Adam Thielen, who's on his way to probably his best season uh, or career year. This is him coming from the Vikings. That's pretty good. But Stroud and Houston offense, they struggled. You know, they, they really did on Sunday. Bryce Young, he did his thing. He actually threw for over 200 yards while Stroud did not. And he actually had one touchdown while Stroud did not. But the hero was Eddie Pinheiro. He made up for the earlier missed extra point, and he nails the field goal at the end of the game, even after the special teams for the Texans jump off sides three times to try to rattle Pinheiro, and it just didn't work. And the Panthers got their first win of the season. Young got the game ball. Panthers 15, Texans 13. Afternoon slate, the Browns at the Seahawks. Seattle did those uniforms proud on Sunday to get the W against Cleveland. Came down to the final minute like all these games seem to do. A screen pass from Geno Smith to Jackson Smith and Jigba and a great block by He-Man Hulk uh, wide receiver DK Metcalf. And they put Seattle up for good, and that was due, really, they got the ball back off of a Jamal Ham- uh, Adams off the helmet interception by his teammate and fellow DB Julian Love. P.J. Walker had a chance to try to come back and, and take the lead, but they turned it over on downs. There was no way they was driving. And look, all due respect, Deshaun Watson needs to get back as soon as possible. The, the offense is just different. You know, it, it's so much more different when he's running it. But, you know, he needs to get healthy. Seahawks 24, Browns 20. Chiefs, Broncos, I like improv. I like whose line is it anyway. And one of my favorite shows all time has been Wild and Out. I love it. But I hate that Patrick Mahomes has to do that so much. I get it. But do you know why he has to do that so much? Because the Chiefs receivers lead the league in drops. That's bad. And I don't think they're getting open either. Tell you who else is what's bad. Zero touchdowns for the offense. And the Broncos defense, yeah, they gave up 70 to Miami some weeks ago, but they've lived in one of the better offenses in the league to just two touchdowns, well, excuse me, one touchdown and a bunch of field goals. I mean, they did their job, you know. Also, what doesn't help are five turnovers. Russell Wilson, he didn't have to do a whole lot. He was sacked six times. He was pressured a lot too. 12 of 19 and 140 yards, that's not impressive, but three touchdowns count. Patrick Mahomes was 16-0 in the AFC West on the road. He was 25-0 against sub-500 teams. Now he's 16-1 and 25-1. Oh, yeah. And the Denver PA guy, they cranked up. Taylor Swift's shake it off on their way out of the building. Broncos 24, Chiefs 9. Ravens, Cardinals, if nothing else, the Cardinals seem to have been a problem for everyone that they play. They seem to hang in there like a hair in a biscuit. I know that's gross, but... Uh, you understand, it felt like the score was 14-7 forever when it was, you know, against Baltimore, the majority of the game until the fourth quarter. And Gus Edwards, he was the man on Sunday, scored three touchdowns. And as far as the Cardinals are concerned, I think they're, you know, obviously they, they went as far as they could with Joshua Dobbs, who was dealt to the Vikings today. 
and um, you know, Monday night you knew that that uh, head coach Jonathan Gannon said either Kyler Murray or rookie Clayton Toon was going to start against the Browns this week. I guess we know the answer to that, Clayton Toon. So uh, Arizona, you know, they recovered an onside kick. They got a field goal out of it. Tried it again. Just wasn't meant to be. They have now lost five straight. Uh, five straight. Ravens 31. Cardinals 24. Bengals 49ers. It's real easy to go. Ooh wee. Brock Purdy. Does he need? You know, do they need another quarterback? I, I mean, honestly, I don't know. But look, he's been without Trent Williams. He's been without Debo Samuel. And you know, even with Christian McCaffrey being there all day on Sunday, Purdy led them in rushing with 57 yards. He throws for 365 to try to keep them in the game, uh, but you know, he throws two two more interceptions that were really really bad. So that I mean, you got to play better. But with that being said, they did play against the Bengals who are on a roll. Joe Burrow put his cape back on. The offense is rolling for Cincy. Three touchdown passes and 31 points later, the Bengals won their third straight game after starting the season one and three. San Francisco lost their th- fifth, uh, their third straight. You know they start the season five and zero. Oh. Bengals 31, 49 or 17, and uh, you know got got to be better. Sunday night football, Bears Chargers. I'm not gonna lie, second half I fell asleep. You know I slept through the whole fourth quarter. Woke up and my son apparently put. The harder they fall on Netflix on. Because that was at the end of that movie. I see a guy stumbling out of a saloon holding his neck with blood gushing out. That's what I woke up to. But, I mean, it was a game that L.A. was supposed to win. Um, they looked good doing it for the most part. So what I had to do, Monday, I actually rewatched the second half. So, and it wasn't, it wasn't that much different from the first. <laughs> it just got worse for the Bears. Um, they relied on Justin Herbert's arm. Broken finger and all. Running game was, eh, you know, it wasn't great. Tyson Bajan gets his first start. Sunday night football. It wasn't terrible, but he didn't get it done. The first pass, he goes deep to Darnell Moody. He has a 41-yard completion. He wasn't touched, and the refs blew it dead. That should have been a touchdown. But who knows? I, I still don't think the Bears would have won that game. Um, Herbert, his broken middle finger and all, the rest of the Chargers ran through Chicago like a hot knife through butter. And it should have been much worse as well. Chargers 30, Bears 13. Raiders, Lions, Monday Night Football. First time since, what, 2018? When the Detroit Lions first hired Dan Campbell, I thought he was going to be duct tape. I call coaches that that are just there to hold things together until the real thing gets there. Dan Campbell is the guy. Uh, How the Lions were going to respond after that beat down in Baltimore. And look, Lamar Jackson is 16-1 against the NFC. That's scary if you talk if he ever does reach the Super Bowl. But um, you know, it was a, a beatdown of epic proportions. It wasn't perfect, but they took care of their business, the Lions did on Monday night. They overcame three turnovers. Jameer Gibbs was definitely in the game plan coming in. The guy had seven touch, touches at the beginning of the, of the first drive alone. He finished with 31 of those. He ran for, what, 162 yards, had 189 yards and a touchdown. Anyway, Gibbs teamed up with Craig Reynolds, and they ran for over 220 yards on Monday Night Football. The Raiders, I, I guess that um, that players-only meeting didn't really work very well outside of one legit touchdown drive for the Raiders and a pick six by the defense. There's nothing really 
to talk about Jimmy G looked like he was just constantly had his face planted into the grass, you know, constantly under pressure. The Lions had six sacks and nine hits on him. And, uh, you know, I shed a tear for Devontae every time I watched one of those Taco Bell commercials. It's not great. He was targeted seven times, only had one catch for 11 yards, and then he had that bobble drop that he had too. But, you know, I don't understand. I, don't, I really don't understand it. But uh, they got to turn some things around. Lions 26, Raiders 14, and it should have been much worse than that. Coming up next, Paul Brown was more than just the head coach, GM, and part owner of the team that bared his name. He was the father of modern football. Y'all get that word, modern football, whose innovations shaped the future of the NFL. One thing I do, or have, and I still do it. Um, I've done it for years. I kind of like imagine myself if I, because I, I played, um, not in the NFL. I wish I had, but uh, I take myself back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, and just imagine what it would have been like to have played then, you know, um, knowing what I know now and them not knowing it. If I ran some of the routes that we run today, uh, or even if I was a quarterback, if I threw some of the passes even lined up, you know, the way that they do today, <laughs> you know, we would dominate a lot of times. Because, I mean, it's, but the thing is, you have to remember that they were, football was really in there in a different stage, a, somewhat of a primitive stage. I mean, football had been around since the 1800s. Um, but, you know, I always, I always take myself back there just to imagine, you know, daydream sometimes. You know, take yourself back there. You know, I, like I said, I do it all the time. What ideas would you have had? What kind of changes would you have made? And remember this, that there was no face masks. Sometimes, you know, there were no helmets at all. And, you know, you had the T formation. There were no wide receivers at one point. Um, wasn't no spread or shotgun, even though they did shift the ball almost in a semi-type shotgun thing. There was a point where they rolled the football back to the quarterback, actually. That was crazy. But, you know, you got to look at what they were doing in college. You had the equipment, the rules, the style of play. All of his origins were in rugby. If you've seen a rugby game on ESPN or on TV, period, there's no, no pads or anything, no helmets. They just got a mouthpiece in their mouth. That's it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that things were at the time. Paul Brown, the legendary head coach of the Cleveland Browns and also later of the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, he played high school in the, in the mid-20s. Ended up ultimately playing at Miami of Ohio. He was a quarterback, was pretty decent one. Um, but you look at the roots and what he had seen from the mid-1900s all the way to the time when he became a head football coach in 1946 in the pros. Um, you know, for, Well, really starting as a head coach in from 1930 to the time he was a head football coach in the pros in 1946. He had learned a few things between his years in high school, college, at Great Lakes Naval Academy in Chicago, and also taking all of that knowledge to the Cleveland Browns. He was always looking for an edge. Uh, his ideas, because of his ideas and the way that he put things together, his teams won. And, you know, that's the main reason why he wanted total control of the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland franchise, because he felt that he obviously, like others, 
I know better than anyone else what it would take in order to win. I've won on every level, and that's what it's going to be. And I, look, <laughs> it worked. It clearly worked. And, you know, when you look at the things, the innovations that he had, we'll go over today. Um, it was just really, really interesting. Some of the stuff I knew about, but then there were some other things I did not. It's always something in every show that it happens like that. But here we, I can start with the origins of really helmets and face masks. Kick the music. So, again, football's roots are in rugby. There were no helmets. You, and eventually when they did start wearing helmets, they were leather. And then you had the hard plastic ones that they started in 1940. But um, they were without a mask. Uh, but they had, they did at one point have a type of facial protection. So you had things that were called nose guards and masks. Back in uh, 1889, as a matter of fact, a football player from Harvard by the name of John Craxton had to have something to, to protect his nose because of the beating that he was taking on the line. Uh, in the late 1890s, you had a thing that was called a head harness, kind of the first helmet slash face mask. And what it really resembled, if you know uh, high school, middle school, college re wrestling, it looked like wrestling headgear, but with a nose piece attached to it that actually had, I think it was kind of like a built-in, from the way it looked, a built-in mouthpiece. I thought that that was pretty interesting. Um, and then eventually, you know, because some of the rest of the uniforms, as far as football, you know, you go from wool sweaters to padded vests, and then eventually they had some, uh, they had some some padding, some 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 shoulder pads that were later later developed. But as far as the helmet, face mask, and all that stuff is concerned, Rydell developed the first plastic helmet. And that plastic helmet in 1940 was worn in the game by Northwestern when they played Syracuse. Rawlings, uh, they actually had a nose protector that was actually built into a leather helmet. You know, and this was what in their winter catalog of 1928 and 1929. The problem was, like a lot of these things, before you got the so-called so bird cages, is that they were hot and they limited peripheral div uh, division. <laughs> limited peripheral vision okay you couldn't see that's basically what it is you could not see so cleveland browns fast forward november 15th 1953 week eight this is a game at home the cleveland browns are playing against the san francisco 49ers Otto Graham drops back to pass everybody's covered around his own 23 yard line he runs for 19 yards and I believe a first down. He's pushed out of bounds by these two rookies were involved on this play. San Francisco rookie safety Fred Burney. All right. Fred Burney pushed him out of bounds. But then defensive tackle and fellow rookie Art Michaelick, he comes elbow first into Graham's face. Yeah, that that wasn't great. Breaks his, I mean, well, not breaks his jaw, but yeah, he rips up his jaw doing this so autogram is bleeding a lot from the mouth and it required 15 stitches from the team doctor by the name of vic ipolito and it was on the inside of graham's mouth i always thought that it was on the outside but it actually was inside his teeth is what did the job and uh obviously uh that rookie his elbow was the cause of it and so and I believe that this may have been, please correct me if I'm wrong, 
uh, one of their equipment managers, Maury Kono. This guy was told by Paul Brown to place a plastic clear face guard onto Autogram's helmet for the second half of the game, okay? Autogram does come out after his stitches and they put the little plastic face guard on his helmet and he goes nine of 10. Cleveland wins the game 23 to 21. And of course, the problems even with that was kind of like the same thing with the leather helmet there with the built-in nose protector. The heat though is what, the heat was a problem because it fogged the thing up. I mean, anybody puts on you know, a face mask, kind of like, you know what it looked like? Some of the helmets that I saw in one of my books that I have, uh, to go along with this, it looked like a single bar plastic piece that was wrapped around his, his head on his helmet as a face mask. But the, the heat fogged it up. And some of those helmets actually look like a full um, face, what do you call it? A, a face mask, kind of like the basketball players or, or when they break their nose. Rip Hamilton, Kyrie Irving, anybody else that's ever wore one of those face masks, you know, to protect their nose, but it was out so much to the point where you could breathe on it. So you, you put yourself in a phone booth or get up close to the glass, that's what it was like. But when it was cold, it wasn't made to be stable, so it broke. Well, according to Andrew O'Toole's book entitled Paul Brown, Paul Brown came up with the simple idea of a single iron bar that went from ear to ear on the helmet protecting the player's mouth. Now, before I go further, keep this in mind. So yeah, he didn't invent the face mask and I'll reiterate this later. People say, oh, he, he didn't really invent the face mask. Obviously, there were things that already were in place. Okay, there were. I'll get to that in a second. I mean, just evidenced by the fact that they had something to put on his face mask during that game in the first place, right? And I quote, Brown contacted an acquaintance who worked with a sports equipment maker, Rydell. Uh, Brown asked Jerry Morgan to manufacture something similar and so that it would, quote, fit across the front of a helmet and would be as big as my little finger. So like your pinky, okay? And he explained this to Jerry Morgan. Paul Brown wanted a deterrent to anyone that would punch or elbow any of his players in the face uh, due to what happened to his own quarterback. And he wanted it to weigh less than an ounce. From there, Rydell developed what was called the BT-5, the fifth generation bar tubular or a tubular bar. You see the single bar face mask? That's where it came from. That was actually patented by Paul Brown. He, he got, he held the patent for it. You, if you don't know the single bar face mask, think kickers, think uh, uh, Joe Theismann, who was still playing with a single bar going all the way into, uh, <laughs> going into uh, the 1980s, you know, deep into the 80s, as a matter of fact, with the single bar face mask. Yeah, that's dangerous playing at the era that he was playing. But I mean, it was dangerous here too, but still, um, Rydell would have more designs for a face mask going forward. They had multiple ones, ones for linemen, receivers, uh, as well as that single bar for quarterbacks and kickers. So you had double bars and triple bars, and then the ones uh, that we kind of like, they were the, um, the first, the origins of what you see today. Now, remember what I said, modern football, all the face masks that came before were not the style that Brown required. It wasn't the plastic face mask, wasn't a nose guard, any of that stuff. And the key to this 
is that the face mask idea that Paul Brown patented was small enough and even uh, to the point where you know his player's vision was not going to be altered as well as prime, uh, providing that protecting uh, for over your face. Modern football. There were styles of face masks uh, that came before it and even the first designs uh, of the plastic helmet, you know, they, they, they lasted, but then they ended up having to evolve, okay? Uh, there's photographs of several players, though not a whole lot, that actually wore face masks. Everybody wasn't wearing one. I would probably say about eh, 90 to 95% of players did not wear a face mask. So they were bulky. Um, and even in 1950, another one of Paul Brown's players started wearing one because of a, suck, a sucker punch that he took. Lynn Ford. He was punched by a Chicago Cardinal, um, and uh, I think his name was Pat Harden. And uh, this was during the October 15th game in 1950. And you should see the photo of that helmet. It is a, one of the ugliest face masks I've ever seen. And the bars are like super thick. All right. And to sum this up, again, Paul Brown, he didn't invent the face mask. You know, they, they've always existed to some degree, but he wanted. Uh, I wanted to give you that history of facial protection, but just remember, you know, most guys, they weren't wearing one, and that single bar face mask basically continued to evolve into what is being used today, all right? That was just one of many. Then there's uh, the thing that you need to know about Paul Brown is that he became a football coach by accident, all right? The current head coach uh, at uh, the, the first school that he would coach at was actually in Maryland. It's called Severin. I've I, I seen it being worded as Severin Military Academy and also the Severin School or Severin Prep School. Uh, the football coach at the time when he got there, he was going to be an assistant coach to him. I never found out his name, but he was diagnosed and later died of throat cancer when he got there. And he's like, look, you know, he's sick. Uh, can you take over? And he's like, okay, you know, he, he, but the thing is, he obviously he never looked back, but he was an educator first. He didn't go out to be a football coach per se. He did, you know, his thing was teaching and you can see it in everything that he did. And especially when it came to his coaching, he, uh, he was the first to put all of his plays on paper. If you're a football player and wonder why you have a telephone book to learn, that was because of Paul Brown. He put the classroom into pro football. That didn't start in Cleveland, though. It actually started at Maslin High School when he went back to his alma mater in high school, and he gave all of his players a three-ring notebook or a ring notebook in order to help them memorize the plays. I also didn't know this. Now, according to Miami of Ohio's biography on Paul Brown, he was also the first to use hand signals and call plays, and uh, eventually... It developed into the messenger system, which was also a first. Famous for him in Cleveland, he used his guards to go in and out, taking his plays. And this, uh, one of his guards was Hall of Fame head coach Chuck Knoll. And so they play, carried plays in and out of the huddle. He was the first to give intelligence tests, IQ tests to see what a player's learning potential would be. And those IQ tests were for the player's evaluation. And I have to quote uh, Coach Brown. He said that it simply gives us a better understanding of how we much approach uh, individual teaching problems. All right, and, and I go on. So if you were one of those players that couldn't get it, you know, he would probably adjust. But then, again, you probably didn't play for him if you couldn't retain. 
um, it, you probably didn't play for him. If you had no discipline, you definitely didn't play for him. But I've told the story before about how he cut Doug Atkins, who ended up being a Pro Football Hall of Fame defensive player for the Chicago Bears. And that's because he burped, burst in a meeting. Uh, Pat Summerall told you about that in 75 seasons. Um, but, uh, you know, anyway, this was a week for Paul Brown when it came to uh, the week of a game. Just to give you a little bit of uh, the way that he developed his system. Monday and Tuesday, players were off. There was no Monday night football. There was no Sunday night football. Monday and Tuesday, players were off. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, each morning, you were in the classroom. Of course, you got lunch, and then you had practice that only lasted an hour and a half, and that was it. Saturday was a 30-minute run-through that was held at the same time of Sunday's kickoff. And other than that, you had a team dinner, and then Sunday was game day. But they were in the classroom for three days a week, and they were in there learning their playbooks. They were in there doing that, and no one else was doing it like that. He was the first one to put the classroom into pro football. And then on Sundays, you see how the sideline is full of people outside of, you know, the players, right, and the media and all of that. How many play uh, people are actually on the coaching staff these days? I counted for the Buffalo Bills alone, 26, all right? That's not counting former defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier, who I think still um, – I think he still has a place on the team. He was the defensive coordinator. But you got head coach Sean McDermott, and he's uh, he's got – 25 other guys on the side, you know, that that are on the coaching staff. Everybody's not on the on the uh, on the sideline, but you got Ken Dorsey and other people that's up there in the booth. And of course, we know his tirade to tore up <laughs> the coaching booth last year. But um, they used to only use two assistant coaches in pro football. Paul Brown came along; he employed six. Then when he first started with the Cleveland Browns, Paul Brown had these guys: Red Conkright. Blanton Collier, Craig Miller, uh, Fritz Heisler, Bob Voigt, and John Brickles on his coaching staff. By the 1950s, wasn't much different. He had guys, you know, he still had Blanton Collier, who was his backfield coach. Um, eventually would take over for him as a head coach of the Browns who won a championship with Jim Brown. Future Hall of Fame head coach, Weeb Eubank, coached the Lions. Fritz Heisler, he was still around. He coached the guards and Tim Timonero. He coached the ends, the receivers. Um, and this was the coaching staff that aided Paul Brown in several aspects on game day. He was the first to use game film in scouting, not just watching film, but using it in scouting. He was the first one to do that. Uh, he studied his players, uh, and it wasn't just game. It was also for practice as well. Um, his players and his coaching staff, just as we use it today, he wanted to see the tendencies and the mistakes of his opponents, and then he wanted to see what you were doing in practice. The film don't lie. The early days of pro football, you know, as far as passing, um, remember that it was outlawed at one point, and it wasn't until the 1930s where it, things were uh, when, when you usually uh, normally throwing the football. It became not the norm, but it was becoming uh, more of a tactic used by more teams when it came to throwing the football. And if you listened to the show before, we talked about the 1932 NFL Championship. The Bears and the Spartans, you know, you had that. Um, the rule, it was the last game where the rule where you had to throw the football five yards behind the line of scrimmage, but five yards on either side of the line, too. Wouldn't just drop back. You had to run five yards left or right 
and throw a football legally. And uh, at the time, and I would have to quote Paul Zimmerman, Dr. Z, the former lineman and NFL analyst from the movie 75 Seasons. He's basically said pass blocking schemes were out of whack and they didn't have a clue. And they didn't. Uh, I've talked about this before. Offensive linemen, when they were throwing the football, you know, in the late 20s and going into the 30s, they were run blocking. They were blocking in a straight line. <laughs> Paul Brown developed the cup system. You know, he had his guards and his tackles turning out, forming that pocket that we always talk about. Quarterback stood in the pocket. And they did that for Otto Graham. And that was the thing. They said uh, when they broke the, ho- uh, the huddle, is nobody could touch his ground. Break, you know. And that, that was part of the thing, the cup system. Paul Brown was the first to call plays from the sideline. Again, he had his, uh, you know, quarterbacks called the plays from in the huddle. You know, that's what they did. You know, they weren't running plays in and out until Brown had those guards. Um, but part of having a full-time staff such as Blanton Collier and Chris Heisler, he had these guys sitting in the press box with a phone line down to the team's bench to have that perspective of what's going on. That's how you have people up in the press box. That's how you develop a system like that, a great system, so we can see the whole field. We had that full field perspective, and you were know, able to communicate from that box down to the sideline to the head coach, and, and Paul Brown called all plays, period, which eventually his, you know, his team disagreed on, but while he was winning all these championships, he wasn't really questioned, right? But uh, he wanted a better way and a quicker way to call plays, right? You ever watch Paul Brown's A Football Life on NFL Network? Uh, that was the in-helmet radio. He was the first one to try that. Didn't last uh, not even a year, really. So <laughs> maybe I'll just say a handful of games. Here's what happened. So, you know, the, the idea was developed from a, a guy that knew um, how to uh, do some, had some knowledge, rather, from World War II tank helmets by placing a radio receiver inside the helmet, okay? They would use the shortwave radio. Um, you got your quarterbacks that's on the field these days covering their ear holes, trying to hear the play coming from the OC, and Paul Brown was trying to do that, and it didn't become official until 1994. But why didn't it work some 38 years prior? Remember, primitive times, 1954, out of ground, told his head coach he was going to retire. Of course, um, Paul Brown got him to come back after they won the championship in 1955. 55 was Graham's last year. 1956, George Raderman, his backup, ends up being the starter. But in that last year of Otto Graham in 1955, there was that idea that they had about putting that radio in the quarterback's helmet. The prototype was tested with Graham's helmet at a practice during the 1955 season. The radio was slightly uh, larger than a pocket watch, and it came with a four-watt transmitter that was placed near the Cleveland bench. Paul Brown could talk through a microphone directly to his quarterback. There were places on the field that Graham could hear him and others where he could not. Same thing happened to Ryderman the next year. 56 training camp comes up. Brown's trying to hide that new idea, and then he has to reluctantly say, okay, I'm going to be using this you know, this radio receiver idea. And Brown had to get a shortwave license in order to operate the radio. But there were some stipulations to that. No cussing, no profanity can be used across the airway. Couldn't do it. No, couldn't do it. The Browns were trying this thing out 
uh, through some exhibition games. But the problems was that it went offline and they would definitely pick up outside interference. They talked about the final straw really being in New York. And you know how busy New York is. It was the same then as it is now. And they were picking up police uh, police communications. Uh, and Paul Brown eventually would go back to using his messenger guards in all of these instances where he was trying to do these games. And even on that one, Radman talked about, he's, I guess he said to Coach Paul Brown, a guy just got stabbed over on fifth. He's, he's getting the police, you know, reports and stuff, cab, picking up cab companies, all kinds of things, you name it, you know. But ultimately, there was a vote taken among other NFL owners. Burt Bell, the commissioner at the time, had to ban the use of electronic devices for the remainder of the 1956 season. And it doesn't surprise me that two of the more controlling influence uh, influences in the NFL at that time were at the forefront of that move. That was George Hallis and George Preston Marshall, who were definitely slow to innovations and change. Even though they had some things that they they did on their own, you know, they they, they could be credited with. But Raderman said it himself, um, he would even have to turn his head in such a way to hear the play because of the bad signal. So it, it was it was they tried it and uh, you. You know, that's pretty much what they were hearing uh, amid many different voices, okay? Well, speaking of play calling, you know, you got Ohio coach who became a football coach by accident, and he installed a play by accident. Marion Miley, the first black player inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, a huge fullback, okay? The guy was, what, 6'1", 6'2", and weighed, what, 240 pounds. And, um, you know, he but he, he could run like a halfback. Uh, but one game, Otto Graham drops back to pass, bobbles the ball, and he improvised and just handed the football off to a guy that was supposed to be blocking, Marion Miley, who took off and ran with it. There became the draw play. <laughs> Paul Brown, <laughs> Paul Brown made a middle note of that and then just said, "We're going to install this." So his pass. His, his offensive linemen are dropping back like they're pass blocking. His receivers are running as if they're going to run routes. And then you hand the football off at the last minute. They're quiet as kept. Apparently, uh, the Chicago Bears may have been the first team to do this. But I believe this was in 1941. Uh, or it may have been. It was in the 40s at some point. Um, I don't want to lie to you. But they also, I think that they had done the same play. But then, too. I mean, Paul Brown uh, and his team, they were playing in the All-America Football Conference. So all I can speak of is for what was put down in history with Paul Brown. And he came up with the play and designed it, and they ran it. So that that's what I know, and that's what I'm going with. So the draw play. Um, and then you got the practice squad, taxi squad. Yeah, he was one who came up with that. So, what? I mean, what is that? What's the example? Deshaun Watson gets hurt a couple weeks ago. P.J. Walker is elevated off the practice squad. So where did that term come from or the system of a practice squad originate? Now, Mickey McBride wants to put a team back in Cleveland. And, you know, since the Rams moved away, okay? He's a Clevelandite, right? The AAFCs, uh, you know, they're starting up their professional football league. And along with that, McBride, he hires Paul Brown. Brown is putting his team together, including reintegrating pro football by signing 
two of his former players, one from Ohio State, Bill Willis, and then the other from Great Lakes Military, excuse me, Naval Academy, Marion Motley. And he, his 36-player squad has been finalized, but he knows there's more talent out there. Now, I'm at the quote from Barry Shuck. Brown had one more problem. He had signed so many quality players that it was evident that after the 36-man roster was finalized that there would be many excellent athletes looking for work. So Brown did not want to lose them to other clubs in the AAFC, the CFL, or the NFL. He needed a supply of readily available players that he could add to his roster when he needed to. So he devised a plan. Now Mickey McBride was the primary owner, obviously, of the Cleveland Browns, was a millionaire that had made his money in a lot of different ways. And one of those, and I think that was his main business, was the taxi business. He talked to McBride, all right? He talked McBride into hiring the extra soon-to-be-cut players in his taxi cab business, secretly, of course. Those players would then have cab driver work schedules that would allow them to practice with the club but would be what would not be added to the 36-man roster. Every afternoon, a slew of cabs would show up at their practice facility, League Park, in Cleveland, and if a player was injured or cut, Brown had players ready to play. Within the team, they were called the Taxi Squad. Today, that same scenario is called the Practice Squad and is based on the exact same premise. Readily available players that can be added to the roster when needed. Obviously, it has to be noted that Paul Brown wanted talent on all of his teams. It didn't matter what color you were. He was the second to reintegrate his professional football uh, team by bringing in Motley and Willis in 1946. Of course, the Rams brought in uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode first uh, a couple of months earlier. But you know, th this was a guy that was trying to find talent wherever he could and wanted to. He, you know what? It's like Alabama or Ohio State, you know, hogging all the five stars. That's what he needed. He, he wanted to have them ready. It's basically the, the equivalent of redshirting somebody. He had them dudes sitting on them cabs or in them cabs ready. They were making money for the cab company. But they were ready. If you went down with an ankle injury, hey, you're up. <laughs> they were right there ready, willing, and able. So, among other things, I mean, Paul Brown emphasized the player's speed and receiver. Um, and furthermore, uh, when you had clocking a player in 40 yards instead of the 100-yard uh, sprints, why? His mindset was getting down the field on punts and kickoffs. 40 yards downfield on average. You know, you got punts. And then you got kickoffs, you're running about 40 yards downfield. How fast can you get down there? He started clocking people on 40s. Um, at every turn, you see the finger of Paul Brown on modern professional football. The modern face masks, the practice squad, the full-time staff, the draw play you see on third down and eight miles to go. The, <laughs> the, the, the in-helmet communications, the playbook, game film use, uh, scouting and practice. All of this and more was why Paul Brown won six straight high school championships, coached Ohio State to a national title, had only one losing season in 17 years coaching the Cleveland Browns, 12 total appearances, 10 straight championship appearances, seven championships in 11 years. That's great. <laughs> Former players such as Chuck Knoll, 
Don Shula, some of his former players in the Hall of Fame, winning multiple Super Bowls. Former assistant Blanton Collier, he got an NFL title. Weeb Eubank, future NFL Hall of Famer himself, won NFL titles, one with the Jets, two with the Baltimore Colts. And then you got his uh, offensive assistant with the Cincinnati Bengals, Bill Walsh. <laughs> he goes on from Cincinnati to win three Super Bowls uh, and, and with the San Francisco 49ers and that dynasty that he created there. Just so happened to be the only other team that was great from the AAFC. That's 13 titles in 16 appearances. They learned something from the guy, and so did the coaches of today. References thanks to ESPN.com, ProFootballReference.com, and then also Walter Havergurst Special Collections, Miami of Ohio.edu. This one was entitled Paul Brown, the Cradle of Coaches. Also, ClevelandBrowns.com, the autogram myth and the evolution of the face mask. This written May 20th, 2014. DogsByNature.com, Paul Brown, the building of the Cleveland Browns by Barry Shuck, November 15th, 2018. Also, we've got a couple of books here. How Football Became Football, 150 Years of the Game's Evolution, Timothy P. Brown. America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. Paul Brown, the rise, fall, and rise again of football's most innovative coach, Andrew O'Toole. And then also A Football Life, Paul Brown by NFL Network in 75 Seasons, the story of the NFL. And finally, my eyes, ears, and brain. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, bellyupsports.com. Check us out. You can find us all on Megaphone. That's our home base. Also, the favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show, or I will find your house. I'm out. I'm out.